to Dublin's historic south, where I, Laura Fitzakery, was joined by guest hosts throughout season one in discovering the townlands of South Dublin and delving into their history. We looked at why we referred to Dundrum as Dundrum, what life was like in 13th century Donnybrook, and how Talla now has roughly the same amount of people in it as the population of Andorra. As we went through the south side, we shed light on place names, social history and the areas as they are today, remotely recording from episode 3 onwards. Thanks 2020. As season 2 will kick off in March, this mini episode features just a few extra clips from the show that didn't make it into the final edit. From shopping centre floods, to the first hot air balloon rides, to the long-lost foghorn sound from Dunleary's East Pier, and Bram Stoker's stint as a rugby player, it was the fantastic guests that helped bring local history to life this side of the River Liffey. In the last episode of the season, Dr Michael Keyes joined me in chatting all things Tala, and his article, The Book of Tala, a tongue-in-cheek referral to the Stowe Missile, which is a late 8th, early 9th century manuscript, now kept at the Royal Irish Academy, and how recent research is leaning towards the idea that it was created in what is now the heart of Dublin 24. A priceless object created in Dublin led us to chatting about Dublin itself and its GAA crest. We wondered if it was the missile that they might be referring to on that crest or another manuscript entirely. I was just going to wonder if uh, that's what they mean in the Dublin crest because they say the book of Saint Tovlucht and obviously you know we know there was no Saint Tovlucht but th- th- I wonder which book they're referring to in the in the Dublin crest and I'm wondering if it's the stone missile that they want to talk I, about. I, 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 I have to confess that I'm not, I'm not familiar <laughs> with it. <laughs> I'm originally from Limerick. Mm. So uh, detected a twang there, yeah. <laughs> I, I, so hurling and rugby would be my passions, you know. Yeah. You know, I grew up at the time when Dublin and Kerry were at at loggerheads in the nineteen seventies. All the kind of, Being from Limerick, um, uh, you know, I didn't know, and I living in Dublin, I didn't know whether I should be supporting Dublin or supporting Kerry. Yeah. So I, I just didn't really bother with it, you know. But, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, Dublin's historic south. You might as well. <laughs> <laughs> mention mention the Dublin crest. Yeah, so it has um, something that uh, represents the the basically a manuscript. Yeah, yeah, it does. The way it kind of talks about it, I kind of wanted to end the first season on Tala because according to to Dublin, uh, it's the capital of the south of Dublin, and Finglas is the capital of the north of Dublin. Like they kind of represent those two. Like the, the Ravens is the Gar Club in Finglas, so right. um, which is why it's on the crest as well. But they have this book. I don't know which book they're referring to. They just call it the Book of Tala, the Book of Saint Tovlucht. Well, there's no Saint Tovlucht. There's no Saint Tovlucht, no. And uh, I don't know which Book of Tala you're referring to. So I thought it would be kind of funny to mention it. But it's no. But it's definitely. It's definitely. Um... It's it's something uh, for from people in Tala to kind of yeah. proudly boast, you know. Oh, big time! And I think they should. I mean, like, that's the reason why I wanted to kind of go heavy on the old stone missile at the start, bring us on into into silver gilt copper alloys all the way. We then chatted about reliquary shrines, and to echo Michael's sentiments, no matter which manuscript of Tala they were referring to, the people of that townland should definitely boast that the stone missile was probably created there most likely at the monastery, the edge ditch of which can be seen from the car park of Smith's, of all places. 
Speaking of the ecclesiastical foundations of townlands, this premise rose again and again throughout the shows. The benefit to having fellow historians as guests is that there is never dead air. The problem lies in fitting it all into one show, which was very much the case for the episode of Dunnybrook. St. Brock was one of the seven daughters of Dalbronach from Dice in County Meath, but she is said to have founded a convent on the banks of the River Dodder in the first half of the 8th century, and that the site of her convent is now occupied by the Donnybrook graveyard. Donnybrook in Irish is Donnachbrook, translated as the Church of St. Brock, indeed determining the name of the townland, but also its topography. I was also consulting Duokas.ie to try and find merit to the claim that there is a slight curve of a road in Donnybrook, which is a result of building a road around the medieval enclosure of St. Brock's, and this course was just followed without being straightened. There is a photograph on the site dating to May 1980, taken by Ronan Meenan of the Crescent, Donnybrook, with the old mill house on the right since demolished. But the curve of the lane thought to, in their words, follow the line of early Christian enclosure of St. Brockard. Brock influencing the name and possibly even the infrastructure. Sport came up a lot throughout this season, with football, GAA and rugby clubs and their history being a very important part of the community. And in Dunnybrook, Evan McGuigan joined me to talk all things boxing. Let's just say it's in the family. But in particular about Dan Donnelly. While Dunnybrook Fair gained a reputation for brawling, rioting and violence, on top of everything else in between, there was from time to time a little bit of control to the chaos. One such example of this was in August of 1819, when a boxing exhibition was held on the Old Green, now the site of the Bective Rangers and Old Wesley Rugby Clubs. This exhibition was notable because it was organised primarily by one of the country's most famous pugilists, Dan Donnelly, who made his name as the first Irish-born heavyweight champion. He is bound to come up in future episodes, but here is Evan to give a little more insight into Donnelly's fate. And he had no shortage of people convincing him to stick with the sport, mainly because they themselves stood to gain from his fights. Large bets were placed on these matches, on who would draw the first blood, on who would score the first knockdown, with one woman reportedly gambling her entire estate on one of Donnelly's fights. A couple of years later, though, it did seem as if Donnelly had broken the cycle when he announced his first retirement and he set up as a bar owner, establishing public houses on Capel Street, Poolbeg Street, and in the Coombe. However, being surrounded 24-7 by spirits and alcohol was perhaps not the best environment for him to be in at that stage, and he quickly drank any profits that he made. In 1819, then, he was back in debt, and he now made his way to London in an attempt to clear his name. One of the most enduring myths from Donnelly's time here is that he befriended the then Prince Regent, George IV, and that he later restyled himself as Sir Dan after claiming to have received a knighthood for his bravery. According to the Kildare Chronicle, the ghost of Dan Donnelly will start on unsuspecting visitors to Donnelly's Hollow on the Curra Plains. Speaking of ghosts, episode 9 was our Halloween special. With the backdrop of the Dublin Mountains, we chatted all things fairies, ghosts and even the devil on Mount Pellier Hill. I was joined by Camilla Peterson, who has been published on the topic of shapeshifting, 
so perfect for an episode filled with superstition, hauntings and folklore. In early Irish literature, there are two fairy swineherds that end up actually playing a huge part in the foundation of the very well-known story of the toyn. Now, the two swineherds, they're competing in who could shapeshift the best and into most different creatures. And after several attempts, they end up both turning into worms. Now, both of these two worms are then eaten by two different cows. And eventually, these are then reborn as the brown bull and the white bull. And this all takes place in what we call a rare scale or prehistory to the toyn. It's called rare scale de copa in the mukeda. And we often hear stories across Europe of how men were lured into the mounds by the fairies, primarily beautiful women, who then turn out to be ugly, scary-looking fairies as soon as they saw them up close. And we see shape-shifting again in tales like Tokvark Ethna, where Midir, who is a, a fairy mound dweller as well, technically adopts or technically abducts poor Ethan, the wife of Eckhart, by turning them both into swan. Eckhart is then tricked into picking a wife that looks like Aethon, but it's actually his own daughter whom he then marries and has a daughter with, and it's all very incestuous, but it's all the precursor to the birth of Connemore, who is apparently a great hero. So there you go. This rich mythology of Ireland isn't necessarily surprising when you've climbed up the Dublin mountains and you take in that view. Camilla looked at how folklore can be used to explain certain superstitions and that same episode we reached the dizzying heights of where the fairies themselves dwelled. But what's even more interesting is how one used to navigate their way to the likes of Fairy Castle on Two Rock. You know, pre-Google Maps. Fairy Castle is marked by a stone cairn and an ordnance survey trick pillar. Now, Ken Cavini from the Brothers of Lug, Ireland's oldest walking group, notes that the man responsible for the trig pillar that we recognise today on mountaintops all over Ireland was Brigadier Martin Hoteen. Born in 1898 in London, Hoteen became head of the Trigonometrical and Levelling Division at Ordnance Survey in the UK. Hoteen was responsible for the designing, planning and implementation of the retriangulation process of mapping. In order to provide a solid base for the theodolites, which are surveying instruments used by the survey teams, and to improve the accuracy of the readings obtained, he invented and designed the iconic trig pillar. The pillars became a key feature of the accurate triangulation and mapping of Britain, and then it was used, of course, in Ireland. In actuality, it, rather, it became rather difficult to locate and identify key sites for locating many of the trig pillars. They needed on one hand to be located at high altitude, but on the other, this of course necessitated carrying and transporting the heavy and cumbersome materials to really remote sites and then building the trig pillars at the summit. In most parts of Ireland and the UK, trig points are truncated square concrete pyramids or obelisks which taper towards the top. And on the top, a brass plate with three arms and a central depression is fixed that is used to mount and centre the theodolite used to take angular measurements to the neighbouring trick points. A benchmark is usually set on the side, marked with the letters OSBM, the Ordnance Survey Benchmark, and the reference number of the trick point. 
According to historian and archaeologist Christiane Corlette, the cairn and the trig pillar both sit on top of a circular structure of granite and quartz blocks, 25 metres across and 2 metres high, covered in by turf and vegetation. This is the remains of a passage tomb, the easternmost of a series of such tombs that stretches across the Dublin and West Wicklow Mountains. The entrance of the tomb can no longer be seen due to the collapse of the edges of the cairn, with no evidence that the tomb has ever been opened. But archaeologists believe that the interior contains a small burial chamber. There was a belief at one point, though, of course, that fairies were using it as their castle. Hence the name. Oh, I, I totally believe that the fairies lived there. Why not? Like... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So Two Rock can be reached via the Quilch-owned forest recreation areas of Ticknock, Kilmashogue and Tabraden, which are managed by the Dublin Mountains Partnership. We didn't just stop at ghosts on this, our spooky special, which centred around the Hellfire Club. One of the superstitions Camilla covered focused on black animals, having mentioned the slua when talking Irish mythology. Black entities from the fairy realm that stole the souls of the dying. She also gave us a little insight into her homeland of Denmark, too. Black cats and black animals have long been associated with omens of evil or as familiars to especially witches and demons, or even seen as the corporeal form of evil. So black cat crossing the road in front of you means bad luck. We all know that one. Black cats are also generally not adopted as quickly as other cats, say, in rescue centres, but the tradition of the black cat is also still found in folklore and folk tradition across the world. I can talk of an example in my home country of Denmark, where in February we have a carnival, which happens a week before Lent in the Lutheran calendar, and then it ends on Shrove Tuesday. So in late medieval times, there was a tradition for putting a black cat in a barrel and then whacking the barrel until the cat died of fright. And this was essentially a way of dispelling evil, the same way people used to do with lighting fireworks. You're scaring evil away so that it doesn't harm you, the harvest, the likes of that. Today, however, we do not put a cat in a barrel. We've learned our lessons. We simply paint a black cat on the barrel, and then we fill it with sweets. Much better. Now, in Ireland, there is a lot of stories about people seeing large black dogs at night, especially when walking alone. And you also, of course, have the slug that I mentioned earlier, this type of evil fairy that takes the shape of large black birds. And the big black evil dog was, of course, also used by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in The Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, they're, <laughs> they're everywhere. And I'm really happy that I didn't actually see any when I was passing the Sherwood's house heading up to Hellfire Club. One of my many trips up that way anyway. And iron. Iron. Just use iron. Iron. Bring iron with me everywhere. And... Though the building is a ruin today, there is also a trig pillar outside of it as well. So you'll see a nice trig pillar right outside uh, the building. You can enter the Hellfire Club or Mont Montpellier Lodge and you can walk around. Dublin Mountains wasn't the only thematic episode. Our tour of South Dublin started at Dundrum, then on to Harold's Cross, Black Rock, Rathfarnham, Ranla, Lucan, Dunleary, Donnybrook and Talla. But episode 8 on Clondalkin was our Viking episode with Trisha Ryan at the helm and episode 11 on Dublin 2 was a festive special based around theatre history. 
Myself and guest Jennifer Laverty could have chatted all day about the lost theatres of Dublin City. After talking about Shakespeare being performed at Dublin Castle, and as Jen is an actress and a playwright, I incorporated an insight into quick drama, which took place on none other than Donnybrook's Fair Green. Um, I know you were mentioning Richard III there just briefly, and I just want to jump in with a bit of Shakespeare fact for you. Fun Always. Fact. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. Yes. But I suppose, speaking of interesting theatre venues in Dublin, Donnybrook was was the order of the last episode. And on its fair green in 1828, Scott's melodramatic theatre raised its gorgeous front above all the theatres and had had little boardwalks that the actors could walk on. As noted by historian Seamus O'Machu, uh, the people who were the dramatists themselves, male and female, were all attired in the costumes and they were seen promenading this platform hmm. up on Donnybrook Fair Green with small adaptations of bigger plays to kind of draw in the crowds. Hmm. So Hamlet could be done in 20 minutes. Amazing. <laughs> I think you'd love to see that. Absolutely. And also the great favourite, uh, which was the great favourite amongst the whole crowd, Othello, could also be done quite quick. <laughs> the owner of the booth would then often stand out of the side of the stage with a watch and cry out, the time is up, commit the murder and down with the curtain. <laughs> I think you should try that short attention span that would definitely work with modern audiences and that was for the audience to get out to be ushered out and a new audience brought in so fantastic thought you might enjoy that yeah a huge thank you to all the other guests that joined me throughout the year on this monthly show and to Dublin South FM who host it the radio show airs pandemic dependent every second Wednesday of the month at 3pm and the podcast then is live on the Friday of that week. But the joys of recording from home means I have a collection of when we got a little tongue-tied. For those who don't know, from 12.04 until 12.22. No, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, there is a much longer outtake reel. On the show, we cite the fantastic work done by Irish and international historians and the reading list with all their details, as ever, can be obtained from me at dublinshistoricsouth at outlook.com. Please like, share and subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow along on Twitter at Dublin's Historic, Facebook at Dublin's Historic South and on Instagram at Elfitz History which not only features images from the show but extra slices of history both of home and abroad. To the listeners, thank you so much for following along the first season of Dublin's Historic South. Season 2 will be back in March 2021 with the townland of Balls Bridge kicking it all off. Stay tuned and take care.